The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game, InvestMart's second best podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager for our Growth and Income Funds here at InvestMart slash Intelligent Investor. And as always, I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our Small Cap Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nathan. We should actually rename this one because you're going to be doing all the heavy lifting. It's turned into somewhat of a small cap podcast this week. Yeah, lots of questions coming through, which is good to see. Yeah, I think it's fair enough anyway, seeing you've uh, put the podcast uh, behind your own needs, taking two weeks of annual leave. Uh, and so we'll be three weeks before we're back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's my Christmas break coming up, so I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully you'll have a few new stock ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got a bunch of questions about a lot of stocks today. So first off, though, we're going to look at a stock that you and I have been having a bit of a look at, and we're trying to understand better. Uh, Alan Kohler actually did a nice job interviewing uh, one of the senior management uh, recently, if you want to look at that. Nathan, giving a plug to the, fr- <laughs> the, the best podcast at Investment. Yeah, I know. We're a team now, but you know, we don't overtake them. Um, Alex... Webjet, uh, it's a business that I think everyone would have used in their own personal life, but there's more to it these days. That's right, yeah. It's it's a really well-known business, but it's a business that I've been befuddled by in the past. I've never actually understood why so many people go to it and pay such a high fee, um, $35 for a domestic flight or 55 for an international flight, when they can go direct to the airline's website and do it for next to nothing. Um, so that's been something I, I, I've struggled with, but the business has performed really well. And so it's one of these situations where we need to say, gee, I've been wrong with that initial assessment. I need to step back, have a clean sheet of paper and assess it from the ground up again. So we've been doing that recently and if, and we've learned a few new things about the business. So the first thing is probably convenience. And businesses like Jumbo Interactive have showed us the, the premium that Australians place on convenience. So Jumbo Interactive is a, a lottery reseller online. And consumers pay a higher price there, but it, it's really easy to transact and consumers clearly value that. And so I think a similar dynamic is playing out for Webjet. If you're a member and you've got your passenger and payment details stored, it's very easy to go there and within a few clicks you can transact and, and buy your flight. And I think you know, the other advantage too that Webjet has is you're actually booking multiple legs through different airlines. Exactly right, yeah. So if you had to do that individually and go to each airline's website and fill out all those forms, it takes a lot of time and to do that in one place is much easier via Webjet. So the convenience factor is certainly there. I think the second part though is peace of mind. I had an experience personally where I was overseas in Europe and I bought some flights via Skyscanner and there were a few changes there and we really felt left in the lurch. We didn't know who to call. It was quite difficult to contact them and to sort our flights out. And I think what Webjet does, because it's so widely known in Australia, you know, it's been around since 1998, it's now got 50% market share of the online travel space. It really just gives peace of mind to Australian consumers that there's someone there they can trust and they can help them out when in need. And there was actually a really interesting regulatory factor there, which I think is strengthening that. So if you go back to the 80s, the industry was characterised by shonks. There were lots of dodgy travel agents in the space and consumers got um, really poor service there. Now what um, the government actually did was they introduced a levy where travel agents would have to contribute to a fund and that would be used to remunerate, remunerate consumers in the event that a travel agent went bankrupt. Um, 
Now, what's actually happened is that in 2014, that was repealed. And so now if a travel agent goes broke, you will actually lose your money. And travel insurance doesn't protect you um, in this instance. So that signals to consumers that you really need to, to go with a travel agent you trust and you know is going to be around. And I think that's just strengthening Webjet's um, peace of mind factor. You know, it's really encouraging consumers to go with a reputable operator. And that's really strengthening things. And that business has only really been in Australia and maybe New Zealand or just Australia? Yeah, it's, um, it's predominantly Australia. That's the biggest part of, of their earnings and a big part of the valuation. Um, but that's actually not the most important question now for Webjet because over the last five years, they've developed this new B2B business. And that's so now... That's business to business for, for those aren't, who aren't up with the jargon. That's right. Yeah, so business to business. And it's in the space of bed banks. So what this means, and we've been talking about this <laughs> the last few days and it is quite confusing. Um, but what it means is that Webjet essentially goes around to hotels and it signs them up and then it's able to pr provide that room availability and pricing data to people like travel agents and, and airlines and just anyone that wants to sell hotels. So it acquires all of these hotels um, and then gets a large inventory there and it provides that data in digital form via an API um, to the end user. So an API? Gee, I, I can't actually <laughs> remember what it stands for. Basically just a website, right? A specific well, yeah. Website system for a business yeah it helps software systems um, communicate it's a, a programming interface so they can communicate between one another so that, that's actually a good business there's a, a high cost to acquire a hotel but there's a low marginal cost there and that typically when you have those two factors together there can be really good economics now this is a big fragmented space. It's a $50 billion market. Webjet is now the number two. They've made a number of acquisitions and they've built quite a position there. So there's the potential for this business to be much bigger in time if they can continue to consolidate this industry. And I think it could actually be defined by network effects because for a hotel, it makes sense to go with a big operator because they provide the greatest distribution for um, your business, the greatest sales potential for you. And also for the travel agents, it makes sense to use the big providers um, who have all of the hotels because using duplicate APIs just adds complexity. So this could be defined by network effects and it could be quite an important business over time. However, there is a large competitor. They've been earlier in a roll-up strategy. They're much bigger than Webjet's B2B business, web beds, um, so they are in a stronger position. So it isn't over clear to me now whether Webjet will be the dominant provider, um, but it could still have a good future as the number two in the space. What I think is interesting, uh, we, we, you know, we call this podcast in the Game, we're always on about insider ownership, and I think the market generally has always had doubts about this business for exactly the reasons you spelled out earlier, about what's the sustainability of people paying these amounts of money uh, for convenience and when you can just go direct. And so I think that's kept a lot of investors away. But this is a founder-led business, or it certainly was. It's got some big insider ownership. And it's just continued to pluck away. It's, it's got nice shareholder returns since it listed many years ago. And I think one of the things you pay for when you have an insider owner is a real entrepreneurial spirit that you don't see in, say, a corporate CEO who's running a big bank, for example, and there's only so many things he can do. Whereas for something like uh, Webjet, They've basically started a whole new business here from existing cash flow from the business. That's exactly right. Yeah, the CEO, I think he owns about $65 million worth of Webjet stock. So that's clearly encouraging. But there is also a clear roadmap here. 
they have this long-term strategy in the B2B space and they're working towards that and that provides direction for the company and also for shareholders because we can see where the company's going to allocate capital and we can assess that and make our own judgment about whether they'll be successful. And the CEO also has experience in this space. He um, previously worked at a, another business business that was in the the bed banking space so he's he's got experience there and he's using a similar strategy inside webjet so it's not something that we're thinking of buying today but it's something that we're interested in getting to know better and it's one to watch for the future and i actually tell a lie they did raise capital for some of these investments uh, so it hasn't been all out of operating cash flow but i think uh, one thing i do look at when i see these types of companies uh, raising capital for large investments is it's usually the companies that just use basically all debt and put that on the balance sheet and then make these acquisitions that are the worst because if they don't work out, they tend to destroy the existing business as well and that's when you get massive falls in share prices, massive dilution and that actually can be an opportunity when the stock's down 80 odd percent. But I think uh, as I've talked about before with Reese and Reliance Worldwide, just as two examples in the plumbing space, Australian companies, they've gone overseas to make big acquisitions but they've raised capital and, uh, in, and when both were announced, uh, the founders put money into those uh, investments as well. So that gives me a little bit more comfort that hopefully we'll be, uh, I think 70% of all acquisitions lose value, waste value. So hopefully we're in the 30% with those couple of stocks at least. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to get into questions. The first one is, uh, dear Nathan and Alex, really like the podcast, you're a great source of new ideas and perspectives. Could you give your opinion about a small property trust, a BWR, uh, which is brick wall property trust? Uh, it's come five cent dividend and will soon have $100 million in the bank as a result of a recent commercial transaction. The director seemed to be quite entrepreneurial, but the stock appears to be fairly liquid. Uh, it may be the sort of company that Nathan finds appealing. Best wishes, John Brickwall. I saw a presentation of this earlier in the year and I just wasn't sure about the longevity of the business. Yeah, um, it's not a business that I'm hugely close to, um, but I am familiar with their Watso business. And that's in the co-working space, so it competes with companies like Servcorp, which is also listed on ASX, and large multinationals such as... WeWork. WeWork, that's the one, just forgot the name for a second. Um, and, and this is a really interesting space because WeWork is funded by SoftBank, which is um, a venture capital firm that has huge amounts of money and they're pumping um, enormous amounts of money into WeWork. And we were using that to just really grow their network, and some would argue that they're doing so. Um, there's some dodgy stuff going on there. There's some dodgy at stuff at the going moment. On. Uh, I think the latest headline I saw was uh, management uh, raising money or buying the property just so we work and lease it out, something like that. Yeah, I think the management team are, are buying properties. In their own personal That's right, accounts, their own and, then, and then leasing it to WeWork. So, but WeWork is, is charging very low prices for um, the co-working part, but it's paying enormous amounts to get the property, and it looks like it has an uneconomic business, but it's just um, remaining in existence because it has so much money from SoftBank. So, um, WeWork might ultimately be a huge disaster for those investors, but it's creating a huge disruption for the other players in the space. So I think that's something you need to watch really closely. Um, Servcorp has, has clearly struggled as a result, and that's making life really difficult. Yeah, uh, something for me when I see these new businesses, I always feel much better if they've been through a downturn before, and I get a good sense of how they behave through those downturns, and Brickwall hasn't had one of those yet as a fairly new business. Yeah, and we may be about to see that given what's happening in residential property here in Australia. So, yeah. Okay, next question. Uh, so Christian's back from holidays. Thanks, Christian. Alex and always... 
Alex and I always appreciate your questions because it saves us from having to think them up. Um, he says, uh, so back from holidays, we'd love to hear updates on four companies. The first one is Eleanor Investment. Yeah, Eleanor, so it's another property business. This is a funds management business in the property space. And it's got a, a good board. Well, it's got a good board member, um, Alan Moss, who is the ex-head of property at Macquarie. And the business has executed fairly well over the last five years or so. So they've increased their funds under management from a few hundred million to now well over a billion. Um, and yeah, they're starting to sh- show some, some good returns there. Now, Nathan's made the point about 360 Capital where they're pursuing um, a growth in funds management strategy, but they're focusing on the credit side of things. Um, and I, I do think that is important at this time in the cycle. Um, Eleanor owns properties, so it's owning the equity and its returns will be dependent on you know how those properties perform in terms of the yield and capital appreciation. Um, and, and so it is more exposed to the cycle and I think that is important to consider. Um, it is one of these situations where you are buying a, a funds management business and you're not paying much above the net tangible assets of the company because they also have lots of investments in their, in their funds and properties. So if you are a REIT investor, I think it makes a lot more sense to focus on these situations because you get that exposure to property, but then you get the upside from the funds management business. Um, but I think it's important to consider the cycle. Um, you know, I'm more interested in, in the credit side of the things um, like 360 Capital. Um, so I'd be cautious around Eleanor at this, at this point. Do you know what sort of market cap that business has? Yeah, it's couple hundred million, I'm, I'm not exact on that. Okay, so definitely one for the watch list and I'll go and have a look at it myself. Uh, the next stop mentioned is Class. So Class uh, offers uh, software for self-managed super funds at a very cheap price. So it's really trying to encourage uh, individuals from just doing their own spreadsheeting or uh, worse, just a whole bunch of, pu- bunch of paper in a box. Uh, but also it tries to get financial planners to sign up and then uh, for every person or every individual that the planner looks after, then class gets a fee. And that's been a very successful business, but it also has a very strong competitor in BGL, and that's why the share price uh, is down over the last sort of, six, 12 months. Uh, actually, probably sort of, it's less than half what it was. I think it was over $4 at one point a share. Uh, I was buying around 2 and it's now went down to about $1.30, I think, and now it's bounced back to $1.60. There's a few things going on with class. Uh, two major things. One, there's just been a new CEO appointed. Andrew Russell is, is his name, and he has a background at REA Group and Mortgage Choice. Um, I don't know whether he's been a CEO. I don't think he's been a CEO before, and I'm pretty sure not of a listed company. So this is, a, from what I can tell, it's his first big gig, and no doubt he'll he'll really want to do a good job because um, if, if you don't, imagine it's a bit like an AFL coach, if you don't do a good job first time around, you probably don't get a second chance. But at the moment, he's only brand new and he's only been there for two or three weeks and I'm not even sure if he's actually started in the office yet. So uh, the one thing, I mean, the big worry for class is that my investment case was that they've got another aspect of the business, which is essentially adding a Hub24 type uh, investment platform uh, within the system. So they try to sign up all these uh, planners and individuals to the investment platform as well, and they ch- charge fees for that as well, uh, but very low fees, and, and, and InvestMart's actually a customer, so that shows you uh, we're all about low fees, so that tells you everything you need to know about that part of the business. Now, at the moment, 30% of the SMSF customers are using the investment platform, but I'm hoping that this could be a really big growth business for um, over the next four or five years. Uh, it's cheap, 
and it even looks really cheap next to incumbent, uh, sorry, uh, the, uh, the aggregators like Hub24 and NetWealth, which are considered by the market to be the cheap players against the incumbents like um, BT and, and the really Macquarie's and uh, those uh, colonials, those big companies. So at the moment, I'm hanging on, but there is some risk with Labor coming in to government, assuming they do, that people are going to switch from their SMSFs into industry funds, as I'm sure people have been reading about how the industry funds are going to be able to pay franking benefits because so many of their members are actually still working uh, and aren't in the actual pension payout phase, they're still in the accumulation phase. So that's a big advantage. I don't think enough has been talked about this in the media. You think Liberal would have just grabbed this and gone with it to, to fight with Labor, but I think they've just got so many problems of their own, uh, they've forgotten about it. But Bob Godleapson's written quite a lot about this and definitely worth having a look at. So for now, it's a hold for class for me. Uh, it's only 2.5% uh, of the portfolio at the moment, so it's not a big position, but I just want to get more comfortable that, that the actual business, the investment case that I see uh, is actually working and that Andrew Russell's the right man for the job before I think about increasing the stake. The next one's MSL Solutions, which uh, is a holding in the small cap portfolio, Alex. That's right. So MSL Solutions is a software provider to member-based clubs, so things like golf courses and also sports stadiums. But it's been a disappointment because execution has been poor. Revenue was softer in the first half of this year. And the company has had poor communication. They've, had, they've created a few metrics which are pretty bizarre, things like EBITDA before R&D, <laughs> which doesn't make sense to anyone. Um, and that just shows you that the company's having a few teething issues in the early part of its listed life. Now, there is a bear case. Um, the company might need to raise capital um, and, and sales have been slow. Um, but it's not ultimately clear to me whether the company is broken here um, because there are a, a few confusing factors. The company is, is shifting their business model to software as a service and that muddies the waters when you previously have sold perpetual software licenses and then you move to subscriptions. So that that is progressing and that that does make things confusing. And they also have a I should say that half. should be a positive. I think the market these days is much better at understanding that switch of these software business having seen the success of a zero, for example, than... Yeah, that's right. Well, zero was always a software as a service provider, so it never had to go through this revenue cliff transition. Um, but the businesses that have a legacy perpetual software license business that make the transition, it, it, it does really confuse investors. And I think most people take a sort of wait and see approach um, because you do see revenue step down step down before it ultimately builds again. Yeah, and technology one's probably a good current example. Yeah, that's right. They've, they've managed it a lot lot better than MSL Solutions has. Um, another problem that MSL Solutions has, well, not a problem, but it's just a feature of their business, is that they have a, a skew to the second half. And so when you have a, a poor first half, as, as they did, um, investors get really sceptical skept, about the second half. So we'll need to see what the second half perpetual software license sales are when they come in um, in order to... Um, assess that situation better. Now, the business still has opportunity. There's a shift in the world to a, a centralised handicapping solution for golf. So MSL provides that solution here in Australia. So if you're a, a golf member and if you have a handicap, MSL is the solution that takes your scores and, and provides um, that handicap and allows you to compare it to your friends and everything. 
Um, but the world is actually moving to a centralised service, so every golf club in the world is going to have to update their systems. And so MSL was really well positioned to win a number of contracts, and it's got a business in Europe, and so it's well positioned to win a number of the European organisations. So that has to happen in, in the next year, and so we should see some some updates on that in, in the future. Could it be a potential takeover target, or is there a big um, major shareholder, inside a shareholder, that would stop that from happening? Management are big shareholders. Um, there are also institutions on the register. Um, it could be a takeover target. I'd consider that to be a lower probability. Um, I think everyone's adopting a wait-and-see approach here. Um, but, I mean, the, the business um, does have a substantial recurring revenue base. It's trading at around one times its re- recurring revenue. For software-as-a-services businesses, that typically trade, or good ones trade at 10 times sales really good ones like WiseTech trade at 20 times sales so this <laughs> for is now. A, for now yeah this is a cigar but software as a service business um, so execution in the next 12 months is really important all right one that uh, I know you know very well uh, RPM Global Holdings RPM Global yes similar features to MSL in a few respects so they're also shifting to software as a service I'll give a quick overview just so everyone's aware of what they do so RPM Global started life as an advisory business um, to the mining space so that means it's a people-based business had people all throughout the world and they helped miners do things like capital raisings or engineering work and assessing their ore bodies and so on so the business performed really well through the mining boom but when commodity prices started to fall around 2012 the business had to lay off lots of staff it had to restructure a lot and it performed really poorly Um, The business always had this smaller software unit, but it was neglected through the boom years because the advisory business was making so much money. But when the the downturn happened, um, there was a key turning point when a fellow by the name of Richard Matthews bought into the company, bought a substantial position, and then installed himself as as the CEO. And Richard has had experience in enterprise software um, running Mincom and JD Edwards, which are two of the largest enterprise software companies in the world. And he's actually sold two businesses to Oracle. Um, and Oracle now owns um, JD Edwards. So he's got lots of experience in enterprise software. So him coming into the business was a key turning point. How long ago was that? That was in 2012. Now, since then, they've said about investing heavily in their software. And I think they've invested about $70 million since. And this is at a, a downturn in the mining industry when most competitors were under-investing or pulling away entirely. And there's been two prongs to that strategy. The first part is an enterprise strategy. So that attempts to integrate all of the software. So the software that's used at the coalface communicates directly with the software used at head office. So it it gives real-time insights to everyone in the organization. And then they've also had this horizontal strategy where they build individual um, pieces of software specific to the commodity and the mining method. So they've got one for underground coal, steeply dipping coal, surface coal, right through across all mining methods and commodities. So a really big addressable market there. So basically this software just helps you manage a big pit, so to speak, or just a a big dig and tells you what sort of uh, trucks you need and that sort of stuff. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's getting to the point where it does almost everything except for design. So it does scheduling, which helps miners manage the day-to-day operations. They do lots of simulation stuff, which allows the operators to actually see 
almost in like a game form, see which part of the ore body they need to focus on that day. And they, they can actually see where their diggers are scooping out the ore. And it's really impressive. Then they've got the asset management software, which looks at when all the working equipment, trucks and diggers and so on, when they need to be serviced and how best to optimize that. Then they've got financial solutions um, and a number of other features coming on board. So it, yeah, a really big addressable market there and that's been the feature of the last five years. Now in the half year, they've actually reached an inflection point where they now think that they don't need to invest in their software anymore. They've got it to where they want it to be and now it's all about execution. So it's all about just trying to sell as much software as they can going forward and the research and development spending is going to fall. So if they can have some success on the top line, you're going to start to see results flow to the bottom line with higher profitability. Um, so I caught up with the CEO earlier this week. Um, I do keep in quite close contact with the company and they're starting to see increasing momentum in sales. So there was an update earlier this week about the annual recurring revenue. Um, this is for their, their subscription business. So I should note that like MSL Solutions, they're also shifting from perpetual license sales to software as a service, which again, muddies, muddies the water, but it does lead to a much better, much stronger business over time with better visibility and ultimately a higher valuation. But it is a painful transition. But anyway, um, they gave an update. Um, the annual recurring revenue is now 3 million up from 2.2 and a half. So that shows, like, had they sold that through a perpetual license, it would have been about a $5 million sale, um, which is quite substantial, particularly at this time of year. So starting to see some momentum there. And if they can continue that, um, this could be quite a profitable business with quite a strong competitive position um, and an attracting attractive investment when it's on a $100 million market cap today. Yeah, for anyone who's interested, it's well worth having a look at the company announcements and presentation slides, which give you a better insight into the business. And if you're confused about software as a service uh, businesses and why it's complex in terms of the accounting, uh, just Google it. There's uh, lots of good videos and presentations and uh, charts and all sorts of things that explain, explain it really well. Hi, Nathan and Alex. Congratulations on the second best podcast on InvestSmart. Have you guys looked at Elmo Software? If so, what do you think of the investment case? Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, Elmo Software. So this is a software as a service business in the HR space, and it's really following the zero playbook. So historically, enterprise software businesses that provided HR solutions focused on the really large businesses, but they tended to neglect the businesses at the smaller and medium end, um, partly because it's hard to sell to that space, and also because it's so fragmented and hard to cater to a really diverse group of needs. Um, but with the advent of software as a service, it's it's easier to sell to those people and it's easier to design a solution um, that meets the needs of a white group. So they've been focused on that. Um, they're another business that's got revenue, I think, of about $34 million or so in the past year, trades at about 10 times sales. It's been very acquisitive too. It has been very acquisitive. And that's a, that's a really interesting point because if you look at Zero, when it first set off, it had this huge addressable market and a win about acquiring customers organically. And I think the fact that Elmo has been so acquisitive suggests something about their business. Perhaps their software isn't as strong as they'd like it to be, or perhaps the addressable market isn't as large as they hope it is or hope it needs to be. So I think that's an interesting point. I'm, I'm not entirely clear why they are so acquisitive. Um, I also wonder whether this business needs to be successful overseas, um, particularly at the current valuation. Um, 
and and they haven't had much success overseas thus far. It's still early days for them there. But I think given given the valuation the market's ascribing to them, I think they need to grow overseas in order to justify that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be worried about any company that was, that was this small and hasn't really bettered down its investments in Australia already going abroad. Yeah, yeah, it does say something about, about the addressable market and also the software for sure. I should just say um, the, one, the main reason I actually know about a lot of these small companies which Alex spends every day going through is mainly from the ASX does one or two, uh, if not more events each year and they get a number of these small cap managers to come and talk about their businesses. Uh, these days what's really good is you can actually watch it online so you don't actually have to come into um, Sydney or Melbourne and, and come in and watch in person. Uh, although the technology didn't work last time, um, it, they did put it on YouTube later on so you could follow it. Okay, so last question uh, from Toe. I hope that I've pronounced that correctly. Hi guys, I noted that RDF represents one of the top five holdings of the small company's portfolios, uh, portfolio, as well as being a favourite among the analysts for the three-year portfolio competition, yet there has been no formal coverage of the company. Do you mind providing an update? Sure. So Redflex is a photo enforcement business. They have red light and speed cameras all throughout the world. It sounds like a good business. Yes, well, lots of recurring revenue, low marginal okay. costs. Um, but the business has had a controversial history. So there was a bribery scandal in Chicago in 2010. Some executives from Redflex went to jail. Uh, Redflex lost its contracts in Chicago and had to pay a $20 million penalty for that. Um, so that's really hurt the business and has held it back for a number of years. Um, but about two years ago, they concluded that and they've put that behind them. And it's really a new chapter for the business. And there have been a few important changes there. So when the bribery scandal came out, there was a new CEO that was installed to really bring credibility to the business, just to help them work through that tough period. Um, but he wasn't the right person to take that business forward. He didn't have a strong sales background. And so now that they've concluded the legal issues, they've got an experienced industry veteran as the CEO of Redflex, and he's got a really strong sales background. How recent was that change? It was about, I think, a year or 18 months ago. Okay, so still very early on. Yeah, very early, but he's starting to have an impact. So they've started releasing quarterly sales updates, which shows the amount of contracts that the company has won. And they're starting to get some real runs on the board there. Um, which is interesting because it just shows that Redflex is starting to re-engage with the world, starting to, you know, get in front of customers again and, and shows that the message is right. And amazingly, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit there for the new CEO. So in the past, the sales um, employees of the companies didn't receive any remuneration um, based on performance. So he was able to come in, incentivize them on success, and that's helped them to start to win some new new work. Just really a, a back to basic strategy, just getting the right people in front of the right customers with the right message. I assume it's quite difficult, is it, to get a contract for red lights and things? Yeah, I mean, there's a long lead time. It takes a lot of, dis lot of discussion between the customer and the provider. There's individual engineering that needs to take place to understand the actual site, you know, where you, you access electricity, what the f traffic flow is, what you can expect from that site. So it does take time. Um, but when you do win some work there and you store your infrastructure, you earn revenue based on the fees, um, or sorry, the um, the penalties that it that it generates. I wonder um, if the penalties have gone down since Holden no longer produced Commodores in Australia. <laughs> yeah, maybe fewer people are speeding <laughs> on the roads. Um, but they do it all throughout the world. They've got a really big business in North America. Now, in the most recent half, we, we saw lots of improvements. So revenue was up 
costs were down, margins were up, and the business generated some some healthy cash. So if they can continue to win new work, I think you're going to see quite a healthy improvement in their profitability because the business is really tidy. It's put those legacy legacy issues behind it, and now it's starting to win new work. And it's a really big market out there. It is a growing market, and there are just a handful of providers who do this. All right, that sounds like the ducks are really lining up there. Unfortunately, it's too small for my funds. Uh, the last one, Toe says, this could be a fun one. Uh, Thorn Group was sold from the growth portfolio by Nathan, who noted its poor quality business, whereas Alex is holding onto it in the small company's portfolio. Is this because of the different portfolio's mandate? Controversial question. No, it's a great question. Um, so Thorn Group, we've covered it 100 times before. So this is a cigar butt financier, essentially, that has a consumer-facing business and also a business-facing business, lending money to consumers and businesses. And it's been a poor performer and trades at a really steep discount to its net tangible assets. Now, I, I still think it's cheap. I still think that you can make a good return from it. However, we have to be mindful of the fact that the Australian economy is slowing. I watch property really closely. I'm probably one of the most, most bearish people on property in the office. And so we have to take that into consideration. You've seen lots of suburbs out there that have fallen by 20, 30, even 40% in some cases. Which you assume is uh, Thorn Group's bread and butter type customers from those areas? Yeah, well, it just means that consumers are doing it really tough. It means that bad debts are probably going to rise and payments are going to slow. So conditions are deteriorating and we have to take that into consideration. Now, on the other side of things, it trades at an enormous discount to net tangible assets, and it does have a very motivated, substantial shareholder in Forager, who are quite keen to see the company either sell some of their assets um, or, or make a number of other strategic plays. So um, I understand that there, there's a level of urgency there for them to do something, and so that could result in something happening quite soon and that discount to net tangible assets closing. But on the other hand, you have a, a softening economy and that is going to hurt the business. So I'm surprised IML is a very large fund manager and they're a shareholder as well. I'm surprised they haven't got together with Forager and uh, tried to change things. Or, um, But I think you've made a point about a legal situation that's holding some, uh, some of this progress back. Yeah, I, I do know those substantial shareholders talk to each other. I, I speak to the company fairly regularly. I know that there are a number of opinions being thrown around. Um, everyone's pretty frustrated with the situation and they want to see something happen soon. And I understand the company uh, is aware of the urgency and they're working towards that. Um, but as you mentioned, there's a class action and that really holds things up because Thorn um, needs to work through that and ultimately settle that before it can sell assets or do something. And, and that's the really confusing factor. And it looks like due to a few developments there that the timeline is going to lengthen and, and that makes the investment case more difficult. So, yeah, What does Warren Buffett say? Time is the enemy of the bad business, but the benefactor of the good. That's exactly right. So for me, it, it's a situation where we've reduced the weighting. We have to take in consideration the new facts, um, and it doesn't justify a big position at all. So we've reduced the weighting there, and you've exited completely. Yep, there was a, couple, a number of small uh, weightings in the portfolio across the income and growth portfolio and essentially I just gave it a spring clean in autumn and just got uh, back to 2021 stocks which I don't really want to own too many more than that. I just felt like the portfolios were getting too diversified and 
too, you don't want too much time getting taken up in your 23rd, 24th best idea. That's exactly right. And, and Thorn is a time-consuming idea. <laughs> I think it's, uh, people underestimate just how much, uh, I guess, emotion and, and headspace is taken up by ideas. And you can have an idea that might be like 17th weighted in your portfolio, but it's the most stressful one and takes up so much time. And you've got to weigh up whether it's worth spending all that time to potentially make 50% or double your money at best, or maybe have a really bad outcome uh, if things don't go well when you could spend that time just buying a good business um, that's going, going to compound over the next 10 years as opposed to some of these cigar butt type situations where you're really just hoping for you're buying a 50 cent dollar, you get your dollar and you move on. That's exactly right. I bought a deck of data recently and it's been nothing but a pleasant investment. <laughs> just goes up straight away, just upgrades, you know, has a strengthening business and it's just so easy. And then you get other investments that cause you nothing but grief and consume all of your time and, you know, make life really difficult. So It might be something worth talking about uh, on its own at some point, but... Uh, Tom Gaynor, who's fairly well known if you're an investment geek like us, who uh, is the investor as part of the Markel Group in the US. Markel is, uh, they call it the baby Berkshire. This is like a little version of uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And he made a point, and I think it's spot on, he said, if you're buying quality businesses, then you're going to be buying them as they're making 52-week highs or record highs. And that's completely the opposite of what you think when you come in as a value investor, right? You're always looking for the bad news, the margin of safety, you know, buying low, buying at a big discount. And so it's a really, it's, I think it's one of those things you, as an investor, at some point you learn to buy the quality and it's just a much easier life. And, uh, you know, compared to when I first started Intelligent Investor World, had more headspace for some of that uh, esoteric type stuff, just at 43 and haven't seen what works. Um, I just had enough of those. I just want to try and make my daily life as easy as possible and just spend it on the companies that can be much, much bigger over the next five and ten years and that's difficult enough in itself. That's exactly right. And it, it, it raises an interesting question around position sizing. I mean, I think the traditional value investor gets excited by lower prices and puts more money into stocks when the prices fall. But I think you should really think about execution and say, when a business is performing better, things are working out, um, it's getting stronger over time, that's when you want to have more money in a, in a good business. So instead of using price as the signal, use execution as the signal. Yeah, Peter Lynch made a good point. It was overlooked when I first read his books because they come across as so simple, um, although it's very much more difficult to, ca to carry it out. But he said um, once you, s you sort of put, I don't know, let's say 3 or 4% for argument's sake in a stock and you have very conservative hurdles, but as you see that stock coming back because of the operational progress, that's when you can really feel confident that it's working out and you want to actually put more money into it. So um, so we might talk about some of that stuff in the future, but uh, thanks very much for your time today, Alex. Uh, thanks, Dave. As I said, uh, you carry today's podcast, which I think was fair enough, seeing you're taking two weeks off. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the questions. If you've got further questions, we'll be back in three weeks. Uh, send your questions into skin in the game, all one word, at investmart.com.au. And I'll be off next week as well. But the week after, Gaurav from Intelligent Investor and I uh, will do a podcast. I don't know whether we'll call it Skin in the Game, but we can just fill in for you. And But we might have a look at some, uh, maybe some more of that stuff we just talked about, the sort of general principles of an investment framework rather than stock-specific stuff. So thank you very much and uh, go the Hawks in round one. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, 
send us an email at skininthegame at investsmart.com.au.